Before we get too far into things, would you hear a scripture reading this morning from Acts 26? We'll start in verse 16. So Acts 26, starting in verse 16. This passage is Paul talking of his conversion. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I wanted to see us do a scripture reading from the book of Acts this morning because we're going to be looking at the book of Luke, Luke being the one who wrote both Luke and Acts. So how appropriate it is to remind ourselves of the amazing work that God has done in converting and calling us from our own death and our own sinful ways into the light of his life. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Heavenly Father, our conversion experience for those of us who know you may not have been quite so spectacular as being struck blind and seeing you in your glory. But it is no less meaningful and no less spectacular in the sense that you called us from absolute death, from being called your enemies, from being deserving of your wrath, and called us into your family, and called us sons and daughters. And Lord, may we never forget that and never take that for granted. Those of us who have been blessed to grow up in believing homes, we pray that we would never take for granted the fact that you have called us from death to life no less than the one who called out of addiction and despair. Lord, we are blessed to, to know you and to have been taught your, your word from a young age. And Lord, as we gather together in worship of you this morning, we pray that you would impress on our hearts the importance of your gospel. Lord, we pray for those among our number who can't be here this morning, those who couldn't make it out because of the cold or those who are sick or shut in. And Lord, we continue to lift Ralph Jurak to you and Carol and Ian and family. And Lord, it's been a slow road of recovery, Lord, but we, we trust you to bring Ralph back to full health and we thank you for the medical professionals that have been involved in his care and pray you continue to give them wisdom and that he might be able to come home soon and join with us once again. Lord, we thank you for our Pastor Jim and Deborah and the blessing of their ministry over the last three plus decades. And Lord, as they are transitioning into this 
retirement phase, we ask that you would continue to provide for them the work of your ministry that you have laid out for them, but that you would also give them rest. Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that we continue to reap the, the blessings of many years of faithful sowing. And Lord, as we move into a new year, we ask that you would continue to turn our focus towards you, and that we would stick with the commitments we make, not just at New Year, but throughout the year to to honor and follow and glorify you with what we say and we do. This is the time of year where people make New Year's resolutions to, I'm going to finally read from my Bible. Lord, we pray that you would empower us to daily spend time in your word. Not be able to just check it off a list of, I made it all the way through, but Lord, that we would make it a part of what we do and who we are, that we would be become people of your word and people of grace. Lord, we commit this service to you. We ask that your word as it is preached would be effective in our hearts and cause it to, to take new life within our spirits and our souls and our actions. We trust these things to you and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. So just like that, another Christmas has come and gone. I hope that each of you was able to celebrate it in a way that honored Christ and lifted your spirits. It's been great seeing some of our our students return home, and we're grateful for a chance to spend some time with them. And we also pray that as you return from whence you came, and family as well as you return home, that God would give you safe travels and open the doors that need to be opened for you to get back to where you're going. And Lord, we are so excited that we have family and students and friends that can come and join with us. It's also my prayer in this time that in line with what we've been talking about the last few weeks, that God gave you a reason and an opportunity to share with your friends and family and co-workers the, the reason for your hope here at Christmas time. And I know that for myself, the holidays always tend to leave me a little bit gassed, peopled out, cookied out, turkeyed out. And I think that's why it's kind of a blessing that our holidays are well-spaced throughout the years, but it gives us a bit of recuperation time. Thankfully, though, the hope that we have at Christmas, the hope that we celebrate at Christmas, has no holiday boundaries. Whether it's Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving or random Tuesday in March, the, the hope that we have in the incarnation of Christ and his accomplished work on this earth and his glorification is that good news is still good no matter what time of year we, we experience it. And just so you all know what to look forward to, this last phase of our, our traditional holiday season is the New Year's 
Eve, New Year's Day, and that means we are coming up to post-holidays. And our first Sunday of the new year is a week from today on January 2nd. And Lord willing, a week from today we're going to share in the Lord's table and dive back into our series on Hebrews. I'll try to pick up where we left off in Hebrews 6, and Lord willing, I look forward to seeing my brothers and sisters for that. But before we get back to Hebrews, we have one more of the synoptic gospels to look at, that being the book of Luke. And the message coming out of Luke this morning is a little different because Luke starts things a little differently than Mark. Whereas the first words out of the mouths of Matthew and Mark and even John are immediately about Christ. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, the word made flesh. Luke starts it differently with a dedication. The dedication is addressed to one most excellent Theophilus. So would you read with me this morning from Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. A very different opening compared to the other Gospels. I think one of the most compelling reasons I found for this difference is that our author is, particularly for the events of the Gospels, writing based on eyewitness accounts rather than first-hand experience in most cases. We're not given explicit authorship of the Gospel of Luke. Nowhere in his gospel does he directly identify who he himself is as the writer. Um, it's long been thought to be, and we don't have any good reason that I know of not to think this, but it's long been thought to be the Luke the physician, who is a friend and co-worker of Paul. But that places our author here as being removed from the action, as it were, for much of the content of the gospel. Matthew and John were likely written by the same named apostles who traveled with Jesus. Mark seems to have been written by John Mark, who was a disciple of Peter, who was the disciple of Christ. Luke, however, not having the same obvious weight of connection to the events of the gospel, opens with this introduction establishing who he is and why he's writing. Not specifically, but a little bit of what he cares about. It would have come naturally for a disciple to write an account of the amazing things that they had seen and experienced. Luke, however, didn't have that reasoning. But what he gives us is that he's writing an orderly account for this most excellent Theophilus. We also don't know who Theophilus is. But 
the greeting that he gets, as most excellent, um, points to him possibly being part of the Roman upper crust, the governing class. The name Theophilus itself just means friend of God. So this could have been a pseudonym for a patron of Luke's. There's many guesses as to who this Theophilus is. But thankfully, whether Luke was the physician who traveled with Paul, whether Theophilus was a Roman governor or Roman high-ranking person or is just written to the churches, doesn't change much the, the order of what we're talking about here. Anyway we go, Luke, give us, Luke gives us some important takeaways to chew on, particularly as we're entering a new year. In good Baptist fashion, I want to pull out three particular words that Luke has used to explain our passage this morning. First, Luke is writing a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among you. This word accomplished comes with a range of meanings wrapped up in it. It's not just this is what happened. This is what has been accomplished. When Christ breathed his last on the cross, he said, it is finished. When he prayed in the garden, Jesus said that he had accomplished all the work that had been given to him by his father. Each of these used a different Greek word, but the weight was the same. These are things that are totally and com completely fulfilled. Not mostly done, not done enough, but fully and totally accomplished. This word also throws back to the identifications of Christ in the previous two synoptics of Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham and the son of God. All three of those particular promises point to the fact that Jesus fulfilled covenants and promises throughout the Old Testament. The thing that had been accomplished among Luke's contemporaries was no less than the total fulfillment of all of God's promises to his people. As we head into a new year, we want to keep that at the forefront of our hearts and minds, and it would be a great advantage to us to do so. We're not worshiping a God that has left anything up to chance or otherwise undone. He has accomplished what needed to be done and what still needs to be done. Right now we're living in the world of 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul says, We know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have fully been known. What we see today is just partial, just snippets of what is to come. We know that what God has set to fixing in the incarnation, what he affirmed in the resurrection and glorification of Jesus is indeed finished. And why does that matter? When we see only in part, when we're walking through the variety of situations that life throws at us, it could be very easy to feel like God only has a very loose handle on what's going on. 
mental image I come up with is the bumpers at a children's birthday party at a bowling alley. God just kind of curbing us back and forth and kind of keeping us in our lane. But other than that, just letting us pinball around and get through. But God finished the work that needed to be done to fix what was broken in our world. Where we live today is in that already but not yet phase. It is accomplished, but we have yet to see the full effects of what has already been done in Christ. And so when it looks like things are barely in control or even totally out of control, we can come back to these things in God's word that we know have been accomplished. And also recognize that Luke's talking about things that have been accomplished not by us. We can be so quick to try and take back the, the things of salvation into our own hands and try to work them out on our own. Like they belong to us to resolve. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christ has completed the necessary work on our behalf. And in our lives, he is bringing that completion to bear upon our hearts. The second word I wanted to zoom in on from our passage this morning is certainty. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning all the things that you have been taught. How many of us feel on a consistent daily basis that we have unshakable certainty regarding what we've been taught about most anything, even the things that are supposed to be bedrock quite regularly are turned on their head, whether it's in science or literature or whatever it might be. And even within our own faith, we often can find ourselves doubting and questioning and going, do we have it right? But Luke is writing that Theophilus would have certainty. French Enlightenment writer Voltaire was a prominent critic of Christianity in the 1700s, believing instead that there was personal God, a higher power that wouldn't have much to do with the, the actions of some small beings on the small world. But one of his most famous quotations is this, uncertainty is an uncomfortable position, but certainty is an absurd one. This idea that of certainty about anything, especially about God and the things of God is all around us today. How then can Luke tell Theophilus that he was writing that we would have certainty? If that speculation about Luke's identity is correct, then he's the same doctor who accompanied Paul. And this was a man that was fixated on details, wanting to write a comprehensive account that was taken from many eyewitnesses and servants of the gospel to prove the truth of the stories and rumors which would have been 
swirling through the region in those days. Spurgeon, when he was writing on the book of Luke as a whole, he said, to get people to come to Jesus just as they are is not easy. To get them to give up the idea of preparing, to get them prepared to come without preparing, to get them ready to come just as they are, this is the hardest part of our work. Only the grace of God working mightily through the word by the Spirit will prepare people to come to Christ. Prepared by being unprepared so far as any fitness of their own is concerned. The only fit state in which they can come is that of sinking themselves, abandoning all idea of helping Christ, coming in all their natural impotence and guilt, and taking Christ to be their all in all. Considering the certainty that Luke wrote about, no amount of scripture will prove the truth of the gospel to a heart that is hardened to it. But no proof besides scripture will more effectively impress the truth of the gospel to again. No amount of scripture is going to prove the truth of the gospel to a heart that's been hardened to the gospel. But no proof besides scripture will more effectively impress the truth of the gospel on one who has been prepared by the Holy Spirit to receive it. This can't be a reasoning for us to, well, we just won't share, share scripture with people who, who don't know God. Because if God has prepared a heart to receive his word, then scripture is the best tool we have. But just like Pharaoh, if they a heart is hardened to God's word, you may as well try to beat down the cement wall next door. It's not going to work. If you or someone you shared the gospel with are trying to poke holes in the gospel, ridiculing it, attempting to ignore it, then they do so as ones included in Paul's warning from 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When Luke writes to Theophilus 
of the certainty that is to be found in the gospel that he's about to present. He's doing so knowing that Theophilus is one of the brothers. I've asked Lois Doring to make up a uh, cutout quote with their cricket for me for my wall in my office. She goes, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. Charles Spurgeon. How true is that? For those of us who are believers, the deeper you press into Scripture, the more you plummet depths, the deeper it becomes. The more you seek the truth in the pages of the Word, the more genuine those truths become in your own heart. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says, I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Theophilus had received the truth, just as I hope you have accepted the truth. And having received the truth, the word of God is the best thing to deepen our certainty in the truth. There's a lot of using the word truth in a sentence, but the Bible is truth. It is God's word. And it proves itself. And that's not to say that the Bible won't stand up to external criticism. There are many great resources and ministries that are dedicated to doing just that, proving how the Bible and the truths contained therein are wholly adequate to the task. We've welcomed creation ministries into our church a number of times, and their niche is to expound how the truths of the creation narrative are borne out in the world of physical science. I know that the Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, is in our church library. He approached the Bible as an uh, investigative journalist and wanted to take the Bible to task for its claims against the research brought by world experts, and he only came away convinced of the veracity of that truth. But for believers, there is no greater proof of the Word of God than the truth of the Word of God. And the last word that I wanted to zoom in on is at the very end of our passage, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Clearly, Luke wanted to make sure Theophilus was prepared for the task of being a friend of God, like his name implies, that he would know what had been accomplished on behalf of, on his behalf by the work of Christ, that he would know it with certainty. But Theophilus was a Gentile, likely a part of the Roman ruling class, and he would not have the basis or the grounding that would have come with, part, come with being part of the Jewish people, following Yahweh throughout their lives. These people were trained in the law in our Old Testament from birth. Theophilus would have found himself at a great disadvantage, and 
Paul was talking about Gentiles like that when he was saying there's now no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Men like Theophilus needed to be taught. Jewish children needed to be taught. I need to be taught. And each person here needs to be taught from the word. The word he's using there for taught is catecheo, the same word that we get our catechesis from. That means to instruct orally. Along with Paul, Luke says, if you are to learn, you must be taught. Theophilus had apparently been the subject of some teaching because he had been taught. And we don't know more of the who, the when, the where of his teaching, but we do know that he had received intentional instruction and training in the truth. Whether it's in our children's ministries or youth ministries or Sunday school or Bible studies or even from this pulpit, we would desire that the teaching ministries of this church would seek to catechize believers who attend, to orally instruct the brothers and the sisters who are present in the way of Christ. And don't get me wrong, self-study is vitally important to your walk as a believer. Reading good books, studying the scripture personally, even listening to good podcasts and recorded sermons, all hugely important. And if you're not doing those things, that's something you should be doing as well. But those don't replace proper instruction. And part of that is the ability of the one who's instructing you to apply it in a way that is unique and tailored to the people being taught. You listen to what John MacArthur or Sinclair Ferguson or whoever it is is preaching on a given Sunday. It will likely be tremendously edifying to your spirit. But it can't replace someone who calls you a brother or a sister teaching the truth to you in person. You listening to a sermon from Pastor so-and-so on, online or on the radio is not going to replace the, the ministry of the word in your local church. The example of Theophilus this morning becomes a great case for the role of the church in the life of a person. Someone had to evangelize Theophilus. Someone had to go and physically preach the gospel to him. And then someone had given him training, had discipled him. And Luke was writing his gospel to give him certainty about the things he had been taught and bring the word to confirm that belief. This was not a situation of the, the modern idea of it's a just me and Jesus kind of faith. Well, Theophilus' heart had been repeatedly touched and encouraged and trained by the dedicated work of other believers, his brothers and sisters in the faith. And no one part of that cycle of church life is complete on its own. Without evangelism, how are we supposed to expect someone who is dead in their sins and trespasses to want to submit to any kind of discipleship? Why would we think that the gospel would do anything but fall on deaf ears? 
Without discipleship, we have a bunch of spiritual babies who we're told in Hebrews 3 need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. Those are the ones that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4 where he calls them children tossed to and fro by the waves of the winds of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And then without the gospel, without God's word to confirm these truths for what they are, well, then we're just simply people who gather together on a Sunday to worship a God that we guess at. I hope that God is this way, so we'll all get together and worship a God that we hope is one way or another. As we worship together, we know that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's why we're not ashamed to spend hours and hours reading from one book. There are millions and millions of books out there. Each one of us could spend the time that we spend in the Word reading any number of books, listening to any number of podcasts, doing any of these good things, but we're not ashamed to spend all the extra time in the world on one book. Because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. With our Lord Jesus, we can emphatically say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And as Christmas time wraps up and we're heading into a new year, we even talked about it in the prayer meeting this morning, we are inundated with all kinds of materialistic Ideals. Boxing day today. There is no more materialistic day in the West than Boxing Day. Now that you got all this stuff, here's the stuff you still need. But we don't still need that stuff. I don't know who needs to hear it, but that thing in your Amazon cart, you don't need it. But what we do need is to come back repeatedly to word of Christ. We are moving into a new year that I don't know about you, but all of us are always hoping that next year will be better than this year, and this year was tough in a lot of respects, and we're hoping that 2022 will be a better year. But whether it is or it isn't, doesn't change the value of the Word of God. Even in tough times, the Word of God takes on newfound value in our eyes because all of a sudden we, we find ourselves needing it more. I'll pray with Luke that I'd be able to say when I'm preaching that we're expounding the Word to our church right here, that we would be giving more certainty about what you've been taught. For anyone either here or joining us online who hasn't yet come to terms with the fact that this is truth, I pray that you would hear that truth here and hear that truth from those who are here 
that we would be sent from this place prepared and equipped to share that gospel with the with the brothers and sisters and friends and co-workers that we meet with on a on a regular basis so that they might come to abide in the word so that they will know the truth and the truth will set them free we can be oh so thankful this morning and every morning that the work of Christ is indeed accomplished. It's not a work in progress. We don't have to wait and see how it turns out before we act on it. We look and we see the accomplished work of Christ, the beginning of which we celebrate at Christmas, and we can be certain of it. And we can celebrate the teaching of that truth every Sunday throughout the week and throughout all our years. God be the glory. And as Elk Point Baptist Church moves into a new year and a totally new season of life, we must keep the word and its ministry central to all things of the church. That the word might be preached and we might leave equipped for the work of the ministry that each one of you have. I might be the one that getting paid to do the work of the ministry as in preaching here on Sundays. But my job preaching here is to send you from here to do the work of the ministry wherever you're going. I'm not up here preaching just so you can leave from here and say, well, that was a great sermon, and I'm trying to figure out how to thank you while still remaining humble and to kind of move on. But... I'm preaching the word up here so that you can go to your family, your friends, your coworkers, whoever it might be, and be equipped to give a reason for your faith. And that you might know the word and apply it to your own hearts and lives and see it affect the way you live. And we pray that as we go from here and as we wrap up our our run through the Synoptic Gospels, that you have just a piece more of the puzzle that you need to, to speak truth in your life and to allow the truth to change the way you live. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would cause us to become people who abide in your word, We wouldn't be people who just hear this truth, but that we would know this truth, that this truth would set us free, and that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but that we become doers of what it says. For all of the things wrapped up in New Year's resolutions and the, the craziness of all of that, we pray that going into this new year, we might take the opportunity to reset our hearts and our eyes and our minds away from anything that has distracted us from you. That we might become devoted wholeheartedly with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength to you and to your word. 
that nothing would distract us from that. That we as parents would come home and speak your word to our family. That we as co-workers in the mission field would speak your word to the people that don't yet know it and so desperately need it. That we as brothers and sisters here at Elk Point Baptist Church and even the ones joined together with us online would regularly speak the word to each other. When we see a brother or sister who is in need and suffering or in sin and in need of correction or whatever it might be, that we would not be afraid to speak the word in truth and in gentleness and that you would give us the desire to do so and the strength to do so. May you guide and shepherd us in our direction this year that we might follow you wholeheartedly. Lord, we commit this day to you. ask that you give us safe travels as we return to our homes. And Lord, as you bring us back for our next service next year, that you would bring us back safely in your will. Lord, we do ask that you would send your son, that he would return soon, that we would no longer have to see in the mirror dimly, that we look so forward to being able to see you face to face and to worship together as a church that has you visibly among us. But in the meantime, may we be your hands and feet, both to our brothers and sisters and to the world around us. We commit these things to you in the name of Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction from Ephesians 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance with the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.